Good to be together. And uh, if we could, just as starting out, could you throw up that Calvary Chapel Palace Verdes uh, image with the church logo on it? Because I want to start out this morning by reminding us of one of our vision statements for the church. And um, as many of you know, our vision for the church is expressed actually in the logo of our church. And uh, it'll be up here behind me in just a second. Um, but what you'll see is, is you see that, it's coming up in just a minute. There it is. There it is. You see that? So right there in the corner, I'm going to talk just briefly about that. Maybe you've kind of wondered what that is. Is it a stained glass window? What is it? And uh, this is what it is. In the top two quadrants of that square, you see, you know, the, the individual square. So the top two, you've got arrows going up and you've got arrows coming down. And that has to do with our relationship with God, that we are to uh, know Jesus and be known by Jesus. This speaks about the vertical relationship of faith that we have. And, and then you see in the bottom two quadrants, you see arrows going in. You see that? See that? And then you see the arrows going out. And that has to do with our relationship with one another. It has to do with being known by one another and making Jesus known. That's the horizontal relationships of faith, if you will. And we know, right, that Jesus gave the two greatest commandments. He said that if you do these two things, you will fulfill all that God requires of us. And those two things are that we would love God and that we would love people. Because when we're loving God and when we're loving people, you come to realize that everything just kind of falls into place as it's supposed to be. And when you're loving God and you're loving others, you are really living in the joy and the blessing of life. And what I want to do as we start out this morning is I want to start out by reading the vision for being known by one another. And the way that we seek to do that is through community and through discipleship. And, you know, we do things like First Sunday that we're going to have today where you bring your lunch and we come together and we share a meal and we play some games and we get to know one another because we want to grow, right, in these horizontal relationships of faith. And, and so this is the vision statement that we have for being known by one another. It says this, Jesus made his church, we can just start there, just a pretty awesome simple fact, that Jesus made his church to be a diverse community of followers committed to loving one another, and through mutual love, support, and encouragement, we come alive as we become known. So this vision, what it really does is it speaks to the reality that when we have love and unity amongst one another. Um, we are living fruitful and faithful lives for Jesus. And see, when we love in this manner, it, it, it's really transformative. But, but if we've learned anything so far from First Peter, this is what we've learned. That unless you have first received love from God, you're gonna have a really hard time with the horizontal relationships of faith. That First John told us, right, that we love because he first loved us. So if you want to manifest love, if you want to pour out love towards others in a way that is, as we learned last week, sincere and earnest and pure, you have to first receive the love of God that comes from above. You've got to get that vertical relationship right if you want to have any real effect in the horizontal relationship. So 
as we start off this morning's message with that in mind, we're going to have a look at this portion of Scripture this morning as we get into 1 Peter chapter 2. So with your Bible, open it up, 1 Peter chapter 2. Um, we're beginning this chapter as we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the Bible. That's, that's how we learn from God's Word in this church. And so from 1 Peter chapter 2, we're just going to be examining the first three verses together this morning. And let me read the verses and then let's just see what God wants to do. Let's see what he wants to teach us. Let's see how he wants to transform us uh, by what we'll see. So 1 Peter chapter 2, starting off in verse 1 now, it says this. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Let's just pray a quick prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. God, we ask that by your living and abiding word that endures forever, God, that you would speak to your people today. God, we want to hear about love. We want to hear about how you have loved us, and we want to hear about how we are to love one another. And so, Lord, we ask that in your church today, love will be manifest, and Lord, that it would be seen through your word and through your people, we pray in Jesus' name, amen, amen. So chapter two of 1 Peter, it begins with one of those transition words. It begins with that word, so, and the Bible uses a lot of transition words, words like therefore, or since, or because, or but, or so, and the reason why the Bible has these transition words is because uh, the Bible is a book that brings change. You know, the Bible tells us who we used to be apart from God, but then it tells us who we have become in Christ. And so we've seen who we are in Jesus, and, and now what we're going to see is how then are we going to live out for Jesus. That's been the whole aim of this letter so far. And, and Peter was a man, right, who was profoundly changed by the love of Jesus Christ. This was a man who um, just met Jesus and walked with Jesus, made a lot of mistakes along the way. Uh, we resonate with Peter a lot because the Christian life in a lot of ways is a process with some highs and some lows and everything in between, and Peter understood that. And so as he's now seen the risen Christ, as he's now an apostle just leading in the church, he comes strong out the gate in this book, and he addresses the people that he calls elect exiles. The people that we've learned are those who live between uh, heaven and earth. We are citizens of two kingdoms, seeking to uh, have our heavenly and eternal hopes set on heaven, and yet all the while seeking to live faithfully here on earth. And what Peter does is as we live in that tension, right, is that he seeks to remind us of our identity, of who we are in Jesus, he quickly drilled into what it means to be sons and daughters of God and that we have been right, born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And then, since we've been born again, we have been brought into this new family where God is our Father and Jesus is our brother. And together as the children of God, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are the obedient children of God and that's how God sees you. And so, 
our life is meant to be lived to look more and more like Jesus every single day. And the primary way in which God would have us to look more like Jesus is in love. You want to look more like Jesus? Two things, love God and love people, right? And last week we talked about the kind of love that is to exist among God's people. Verse 22 said that because our souls have been purified, because we've been redeemed, chosen, separated as holy unto God, we've been purified in our souls, then as obedient children in the truth, we are to love in a certain kind of way. And we learned about the kind of love that we're to have as Christians. We're to have a love that is sincere. And we learned that the word sincere means that's not fake. Right? It doesn't have any wax in it. Uh, and then a love that is earnest. And that is a love that stretches out to the limits. That as Christians, there's not to be any end to our love. Uh, it, it goes high, it goes low, it goes outstretching as far as you can reach is the love of God that we're supposed to have. And then we're to love from a pure heart. That word pure means not mixed. That there's no hidden agenda with our love. And that's the kind of love that we're told throughout First Peter. That's the kind of love that we're to have as followers of Jesus. That's what hopefully you would experience as you gather together on a Sunday morning with God's people at Calvary Chapel Palace Verdes. That's what we're seeking after, right, church? And I'm pleased to say that I see that kind of love existing here. I see it. I experience it all the time, this kind of love, and yet the exhortation is still given. Like Paul said to the church in Thessalonica, you guys are doing well. You're loving each other, but do it more and more. Here's the church that I would want us to be is the church that just crushes it in the love department, right? The church that wants to be a place where people can come and, and when they come here they will see, hey, that's real love. Or people who are on the outside looking in will say, there, there is a place where there is real love. It is sincere, it is earnest, it is pure, and I will go there. And perhaps the reason you are here is because it is here that you got a taste of genuine love. You got a taste of what Christ-centered gospel love is. And praise God if that's why you're here. And listen, church, I am more convinced than ever that the way that we will win people to Christ, the way that we will be a beacon of hope and light in this community is if we excel in two things, two things that we want to excel in. We want to excel in the love of God and in the Word of God. Why those two things? Well, because both of those things will endure forever. The love of God and the Word of God are incorruptible and imperishable. You know, a lot of what we experience in church will go away. There will be, you know, all these songs we're singing, all these contemporary songs will not be contemporary in 10 years. <laughs> There's a lot that will change in the church as far as certain things and how things are done, but there are two things that will remain forever, love and the Word of God. 
And that's the church that I would want us to be, that we would offer those two things, that we would live in those two things, and hopefully that's what's changed you, right? Isn't that what has changed you? Is the unchanging and the incorruptible word of God and love of God. I mean, isn't that what happened when the good news was preached to you? When you first heard from the word of God about the love of God, and when you heard from the word of God about the love of God, you received it, and it saved your soul. Isn't that what happened? And and so that is what we would want to offer people who would come here. And so if we are a saved people, If we are his church, we are a changed people, and that's why Peter can say so. He says so in light of who we are in Christ because we have been changed by the love of God and the word of God, verse one, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Peter says, since you have been born again to live as obedient children of God, we are commanded to put away sin, to put away the things that would separate us out from God because it it should be no surprise for us if we are children of God that we should put away sin, that we should be done with it. Amen? And so here are the sins that we are to put away. There's a particular list of sins that Peter tells us to put away here. And and the unique thing about all of these sins mentioned is that they are relational sins. They are sins that affect the horizontal love that is to exist among God's people. And and so these are sins that, as you heard, right, that if our brotherly love, our, our love that's to exist among God's people is to be sincere and earnest and from a pure heart, Peter is telling us these are the relational sins that will threaten that kind of love. The sins that will quench knowing and loving one another in the church. And so Peter first starts off by saying what we're to do about these particular relational sins. He says, put them away. Put them off. Sins need to be put away. And Jesus made a way for you to put them away. And so sins that can be found in our attitudes and in our thoughts, our words, our deeds, we're to put these sins away. Now, the word put away has the idea of putting off dirty, soiled clothing. Just take it off and put it away. And, and not to put them on the cold cycle wash and then to put them back on, right? But to take off these such soiled clothing and and to put them in the trash and to douse them with gasoline and to light the match and to let them burn. It's to put them away and never to put them back on. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at these relational sins that as Christians, we we need to put them off. And then what I have after we go through the sins is I have a, a verse to read from the book of Colossians about the new Christian wardrobe, the new clothes that we can clothe ourselves in Christ. But first, let's look at the things we gotta take off, all right? So the first one is malice. Now, malice is a general word that really, really refers to any kind of evil. One translation says, put away all good-for-nothingness. 
I love that. Put away all good for nothingness. So anything that is contrary to what is good, put it away. But, but when you have malice, malice in your attitudes or your thoughts or your words or in your deeds, what we are doing is we are not focusing on the good that is to be shown toward others. And here is where it gets relational is when you have malice toward another person, what you're doing is you're focusing on wanting them to be harmed, wanting them to hurt. A person who has malice has a desire to see people hurting. You think that somebody deserves pain or harm, and you're happy to dish it out, right? Now, the reason people often have malice. How does that happen? Where does that come from? Well, the reason a lot of times people have malice is because they have had malice shown toward them. Malice is a vicious cycle that can be only broken by the good news of Jesus Christ and through the power of forgiveness. Uh, What J. Vernon McGee calls malice, he says, malice is congealed anger. Congealed anger, anger that is stored up in the heart. And what it does is as it stores in your heart, it congeals there. And and it happens to a person who has bitterness and unforgiveness and resentment harbored in their heart. And why? Usually because they have been hurt too. And when you have been hurt, we can respond one of two ways. We can forgive or not forgive. But if we do not forgive, what happens is anger congeals in your heart. And then what happens is from your heart, the manifestation of what is there comes out, and that's malice. Malice that is shown toward people. And people that have either harmed you, you want to harm those who have harmed you, or just another innocent victim in your path. And perhaps you wonder why you ever became so angry. How did you ever get so much anger stored in your and, and it feels like there's this congealed blockage in your heart, and, and you feel like love cannot come in and love cannot come out, but it doesn't have to be that way. None of the things that we're going to ha- talk about today have to be that way because Jesus Christ has forgiven our debts so that we can forgive our debtors. Jesus has offered us such a great forgiveness that once clears out our own blockages of sin, but can also clear the blockage of sin that has been done to us. That today you can put away malice and you can put on love. Put away what is evil and put on what is good. So that's the first thing that we're to put away. The next one is to put away deceit. Now, deceit is a word that actually comes from the fishing world, which Peter knew quite a bit about. And uh, what the fisherman does is the fisherman uses deceit to catch a fish, right? And I'm not preaching right now that you should stop fishing as a hobby, although maybe there's some wives here who hope the application turns that way, a little less fishing. Uh, But here's where the word deceit, the literal word of deceit or guile comes from the idea of a baited hook. And a baited hook, what it does is it it deceives a fish into thinking that it's going to get a meal when in reality it's going to become the meal. So how does deceit play out relationally amongst 
Christians and in the world. Deceit is, deceit's a threat to sincere love because what it does is it offers something fake so that you can get what you want out of a relationship. And, and what happens is the person who has deceit tricks people into thinking that their love is genuine. But really what it is, it's just a baited hook. And there's these different desires that are hidden. And so whether you're playing catch and release or hook and devour, there's not to be any fishing in the church. (laughs) See, Jesus said to take heed that no one deceives you. And we're to have spiritual eyes to see when there is a shiny hook under what might seem like genuine love. So far be it from us that we would be like rat traps in our relationships. What I mean by that is a rat trap is basically just a lure. um, Luring people in with cheesy love and then we snap on them, right? And and if you're trying to be deceitful, especially in the church, you better, better watch out being deceitful in the church because there are people watching And so you could decide today to put away deceit and to put on real love. And see, you can genuinely love people without having any gain by trying to use and abuse people. You can love in a way that there is no hidden agenda with your love. So put away deceit. The next one that we're to put away is hypocrisy. And hypocrisy, you're probably more familiar than that, with that word than other words, maybe because it's too often seen in the church. And Jesus had a lot of serious words to say for the religious hypocrites of his day. The word hypocrisy comes from that play acting world where a actor would wear a mask. And in a scene, they would use the mask to play multiple roles. They'd wear it to be one thing, and then they'd take it off to be another. They were trying to cover their true identity. This is where we get the term being two-faced, is being hypocritical, hypocrisy. And so what hypocrisy does in the way that it's a relational sin is that it damages people around you because, again, it's not the real thing. It's not sincere. So what you're doing is you're acting and you're faking and you're pretending and you're saying one thing, but you're doing another. And what you're doing is you are hiding the real you and you're being a hypocrite. And the statement, you know the statement that I say all the time? Bring the real you to the real Jesus. Do you know what that is? That is a direct attack on hypocrisy to bring the real you to the real Jesus. I say that often in my teaching because I never want hypocrisy to be found in my heart or in the heart of this church because hypocrisy is a silent killer in the churches. Now, this is what we don't want to have happen. We don't want to have happen is where we all end up looking good on Sundays, but we're living like devils in the week. Right? When we come here, we don't want to play church, do we? We're not here to play church. We're here to be the church. And what is the church? The church is the blood-sprinkled bride of Christ. And there's not to be inconsistencies in the way that we live um, 
because what we believe is how we ought to behave, and our practice must match our position. That's what it is to be the church. But we miss the mark on that all the time, don't we? Anyone here, myself included, would say, ooh, there is some measure of hypocrisy in my life. Now, here's where hypocrisy can be so dangerous. See, when we talk about bringing the real you to the real Jesus, the problem is, is that when someone does that and they're met with judgment or condemnation, that, that hypocrisy is saying, we want to be known by one another. We want to be in community and relationship, but then when we actually find out about one another, we keep each other at a distance. That's hypocrisy at its finest. See, we got to put that away, church. Because if we don't feel secure enough to bring the real you to the real Jesus, which is a direct attack upon hypocrisy, and if people start doing that, but then bringing the real you to the real Jesus is met with some sort of judgment or condemnation or distance, that's hypocrisy in the church. And Jesus said, put it away. Put it away. Now the next relational sin, you guys doing okay? Just coming at you. The good stuff's coming at the second part. This is all the stuff we gotta put off, and then we're gonna put some stuff on. Now, the next sin is envy, and envy is what killed Jesus. It was the hypocritical religious leaders who brought Jesus to Pilate, and this is what Pilate noticed of the religious leaders. In Matthew 27, 18 says, for he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. See, if envy had our Savior crucified, <laughs> then it ought to be found nowhere in the heart of a redeemed child of God. So envy, I, I believe envy has to be probably the most subtle and poisonous relational sin there is. Um, because the problem is we have an ability to mask envy really well. We can hide it in our hearts and the best definition of envy that I've ever found is from the great source of Wikipedia. Wikipedia says this of envy. Envy occurs when a person lacks another's superior quality, achievement, or possession, and either desires it or wishes that the other lacked it. See, you see, envy is not just wanting what another person has, but it's also resenting that person for what they have and wishing they didn't have it. It's an attitude of jealousy that leads to envy, strife, and division. And when there is envy, what happens is we hate to see the prosperity of others because we're so discontented with our own selves and we're not secure in who we are in the Lord and what he has given to us, that envy begins with the desire to possess what another person has, but it quickly shapes up into this resentful discontentment that despises other people. And again, envy happens if you hate to hear about another person's success. And, and Envy happens if you're only happy if you can rise above them or bring them down below you. 
So envy manifests a lot of times in our words. We become biting and critical and cynical. It manifests in our attitudes where we have, you know, it manifests in our attitude in that really the person who has envy, there's no pleasure in being around them. Because a lot of times what they want, they want all the recognition. And so they just suck it in from other people. And, And so if you have envy in your thoughts, in your attitudes, in your words, in your deeds, the Bible calls us to repentance, to turning from that and to putting it away. You know, James 3.15 says that envy is demonic. Because think about it. Isn't envy the devil's sin? See, it was out of envy that the devil sought to either rise above God or to bring God down below him. Hated to see God (laughs) and the superiority of God. And so envy, what it is, it's a losing battle. And the biggest loser in that battle is the person who harbors envy. So envy is, again, I think probably one of the most subtle killers in the church. It destroys unity. It promotes division and strife. And Jesus died on the cross so that we could put it away. And then our final word that we're going to look at this morning is slander, slander. And to slander someone is to speak down upon someone. It's the idea to shoot a person down with your words. Um, It's what slander is. Slander is the blackening of someone's reputation by stories that are not true. And, And notice again the connection that slander has to the devil. The devil is a slander. He, he goes before the throne of God. He is called the accuser or the slander of the children of God before the throne of God. And look, the thing about slander is that God knows all of our reputations. He knows all of your reputations. He knows also who you are in Christ. And therefore, if we, especially in the church, if we are speaking slanderous things about fellow brothers or sisters in Christ, what we're doing is we're getting out of alignment with God and how he sees us, and we're getting alignment with the devil and how the devil sees your fellow brother or sister. So when we slander in the church, what we're really doing, guys, we're harming our own bodies, because we're connected. We are one in Christ, the church. So when we slander in the church, I like what Charles Spurgeon said, it's like an ill bird who fouls its own nest, the person who slanders. So slander destroys churches as well, but it is not a silent killer because it comes by spoken words. It comes in many different forms like gossip, and I was talking to Miranda this morning, that there's this form that I call holy gossip. Come over here. We're going to pray, you know. We're going to pray for Sally. Come over here. Do you know what's going on in Sally's life, right? And it's like you mask it of like spiritual, like you're going to cover Sally in prayer. If there's any Sally here, we're not, I'm not talking about you, but um, you know what I mean? And we want to mask it with spirituality, but when we gossip or even receive gossip, when we backbite, when we give half-truths, when we fabricate stories, what we are doing is we are slandering, and Jesus said, there will be none of it in my church. Put it off. Now, there it is. There's that list. Pretty gnarly, huh? I was like preaching that whole thing to myself this week. 
I just, I can't, and especially with my tongue. James says, man, if you can bridle your tongue, you're a perfect man. But none of us can, can we? A lot of times he's manifesting our words, but not just our words, but our attitudes. In our heart, we harbor these things, but Jesus said, put it off. But he tells us to put something on. See, how terrible would this message be if I just said, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are just such terrible people. <laughs> and I just ended the message there. If I told you what to put off, but then didn't go and say, put this on. We, we got a little bit more message. We got like a whole nother sermon to give right here. No. I have one funny story to tell you. And I heard this story and I don't know the truth of the story, so maybe I shouldn't tell the story. I even wrestled with whether I should tell the story and if it's appropriate or not. I asked several people, and they said, no, you should tell the story because it's funny and it makes a point. So this is the story. I heard this from one of our youth leaders. We were having a youth leader gathering, and we were telling uh, most embarrassing stories. So this, this is not one of the youth leaders' most embarrassing stories. It was one of their friends, and they retold it. So there was a young man, and he went on a first date with a uh, young lady, and they were in Europe together. Uh, they had been set up, and uh, they were going to go on the train for the day and travel around the cities and just kind of go spend the day together. And while they were walking around, um, and they, they were just gotten off the train, the young man had an accident. He, uh, he soiled himself <laughs> in his pants and um, quickly reacted to the situation, and, and what am I going to do? You know, I just had this, this accident, um, and asked the, the young woman, do you want to go shopping? We'll go buy a new wardrobe, and then we can, like, go out to this nice fancy dinner with, like, our new clothes on, and she's like, that's an awesome idea. That's a cool date idea, by the way, um, but he had this other purpose, and so they went into the store, and she went off and went to go pick out her outfit, and he went and grabbed a, a shirt and a pair of pants and went to the cash register to the lady, and, and he was uh, American, and they were in Europe, and he was trying to communicate, you know, I really just need the pants. Like, that's all I need. Um, so he told the lady, hey, can, I just want to buy the pants. Can you take out the shirt, and I'm just going to buy the pants. You might know where the story's going. So they go back, and they're going to the train station, and they get on the train, and he's got this new bag of clothes, and he gets in the train, and he goes to the restroom, and he, he takes off the soiled clothing, right? And he's like, what am I going to do with this stuff? I mean, it's, I can't just leave it. So he opens up the window of the train, and he throws away the soiled pants, puts it far away <laughs> out the train and then he opens the bag to put on the new clothing and the woman put the shirt in the bag and not the pants in the bag <laughs> awful <laughs> it's so they're He's on this like train station, so he takes the shirt, makes some sort of blouse or something, <coughs> and he goes back out and he has to explain the situation to this young lady what had happened, and they ended up going on another date and got married eventually. So that's all good. So, so we're to put away, put away malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. Put it away like a soiled piece of clothing. And that's the literal ideal of, of putting it away. But 
you have to put something back on. We are not just seeking to make ourselves, you know, like, like, ah, get rid of this, get rid of this. You have to put something back on. And here's what we're to put back on. I told you I would read you a verse from Colossians 3, 12 through 17. It says, put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Put this on. Put on compassionate hearts. Put on kindness. Wear humility. Put on meekness and patience. Bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. Isn't that the solution to malice? As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. It's like the overcoat, the the completion of the outfit is love. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's wear that, church. Amen? Let's put that on. So that's where we're to, that's what we're to put on. Now, Where do we find it? How do we grow in this? Will we discover it in the word of God? Look at verses two and three and we'll finish this this sermon up here. It says, like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Consider first the end, verse three, that says that the Lord is good. Do Do you know that? Have you experienced that? Do you have the sense that God is good? You know, we have five senses in the human body. We have the ability to see, smell, hear, touch, and taste. But isn't tasting something a very vulnerable experience in knowing something? You know, you can see something and know it. You can smell something and know it. You can hear or touch something and have a pretty good sense of it, but to taste something brings it to a, to a whole new level. It's fascinating because I, I've got a newborn baby in my house, right back there, a little Knox. And, uh, you know, newborn babies, they put everything in their mouth. That's how they experience the world is by putting it in their mouth. And, and so I think this connection of tasting that the Lord is good actually has this connection to what he says about being like newborn babies. Think about what Peter has already said, that we have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection. That we have been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Think about babies. Do babies have malice or deceit or hypocrisy or envy or slander? It's not long before little kids pick it up, but not newborn babies. See, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, 20, in regard to evil, be infants. But in your thinking, be adults. Like a newborn baby, we're to focus on one thing. 
one thing. What does a newborn baby want? Milk, right, Leah? <laughs> they want milk. They long to nurse on the milk of their mother. I'm, a v- I'm very aware of this in my home. No, my wife, Leah Hendrickson, who I love so dearly, <laughs> is very aware of the fact that as she's woken up several times in the middle of the night to nurse our son. Thank you for doing that. But he longs for that stuff. He wakes up screaming his head off, and he's in our room with us. And I just, she gets up and she meets that need. There is one solution to Knox's cry, and it is to, to nurse, to drink from his mother. And so as born-again believers in Jesus Christ who now belong to the family of God, what are we to crave? We are to crave the pure spiritual milk. What is that? That's the word of God. Pure spiritual milk. Why do we need to crave it? Because by getting it, we will grow up into salvation. If my son does not get milk, he does not grow. Now, as he's been growing, we have been introducing him now to solid foods. It's really funny because when you, you know, introduce him to, say, like a little bit of sweet potato or little peas or carrots or something like that, you give him the first spoonful, his first reaction is, what is that? That is not milk. (laughs) And what does he want? He wants the pure milk. And we have to ask ourselves, Christians, if, if you want to grow spiritually, you will not be able to grow apart from the word of God. You will not be able to grow spiritually apart from the word of God. If you want to grow in your salvation You need to drink deeply, craving, longing the word of God like a baby longs for milk. Maybe the whole newborn baby's illustration doesn't resonate with you. You Do you long for the word of God like you long for a cup of coffee in the morning? Well, Daniel, both of those go together. Don't you know that? Yes, I know that personally from experience. And look, I don't know how you read your Bible. I don't know how you read your Bible. Maybe it's in the morning with a cup of coffee. Maybe it's before bed with some tea. Maybe it's during the breaks that you have at work. But wherever, whenever it is, however it is, you need to be getting the word of God. You need it to grow. You need it to be nourished. You cannot survive as a Christian without the word of God. You'll be spiritually emaciated if you never spend time digesting the pure spiritual milk of God's word. You know, the Lord says in the Bible, he said to Ezekiel, eat this book. Eat it. Taste it. And when you eat it, when you taste it, you will see that the Lord is good. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord But what keeps us from eating? What keeps us from longing the word like a newborn baby longs for milk? Why is that? Where is the desire? Well, first, you just gotta make sure you're born again. And how are you born again? By believing that Jesus Christ died on a cross for your sins and that he was buried and that he rose from again. 
rose again. You believe that you are a sinner, and the only solution is that God is a savior through Jesus Christ. And you receive the gift of salvation, and you are born again. And if you're born again, the sign that you've been born again is that you will crave spiritual things. And spiritual things can only be spiritually discerned. You won't be able to understand the word of God unless you have faith. But the interesting thing is that faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. So it's like, what comes first, the chicken or the egg? I don't know, just read your Bible. (laughs) Right? Ben Kai likes to say that he got saved just by just reading this thing and being so impressed by who Jesus is. So make sure you're born again. But if you are saved and you still find that you have no desire for the word, why is that? Well, maybe because you're filling up on junk food. You ever had that happen? You got a nice nourishing meal, but you won't eat it because you've been like stopped at the drive-thru on the way and you got like a quarter pounder with cheese or something and it's like you come home and your wife made a nice dinner and you're not going to eat it because you're filled up on junk food, right? So what is the junk food that we feast on? The words of malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. So long as you keep those and crave those and eat those, you will not desire the word of God. So you've got to put away all malice. You've got to put away all deceit, all hypocrisy, envy, and slander. And the, the reason why it says all is because there are many different brands, many different breeds, many different kinds of those relational sins. But if we, if we put those away, we put on the word of God, and we will dwell in Christ. We will dwell with him and in him. And so we could go on forever with this analogy of craving and desiring the word of God. But it's, maybe you've said this, but this is what I'll end with is, you know, this book is what will cause you to grow into your salvation. This will cause us to love in the manner that we've talked about today is by receiving this word into us and then living it out. But, you know, sin will keep you from this book. But this book will keep you from sin. Sin will keep you from this book, but this book will keep you from sin. So, church, let's eat this book. I said that there are two things as a church that we want to excel in, the word of God and the love of God. By it, we will grow up. We will be infants concerning evil, but we'll think like adults, amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your grace today. Thank you for your gospel that says that even though we were found to have these sins of relationship, and not just relationally with one another, but with you, Lord. And Lord, you came down from heaven, and there was no malice found in you, Jesus. There was no deceit in you, Lord. No, no hypocrisy, no envy, no slander. When you died on the cross, you didn't even open your mouth. Lord Jesus, you are so sincere, you are so earnest, you are so pure, Lord. And as your people, we want to be like you, Jesus. And we know that only you can help us to be like you. So God, pour out your love upon us. 
Let your word be planted within the soil of our hearts and would it take root and would it grow and produce these fruits that we've talked about tonight, today. And God, we love you for your church. We love you that we are the blood-bought bride. We have been purified. We are without blemish. And you see us as holy and set apart for you. So we love you, Lord. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.